And uh, welcome to a, a special edition of the Syndrome podcast. Um, I am very lucky to be joined by uh, several friends today uh, who are going to discuss with me uh, the film Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Uh, the, the idea for this podcast came about, um, oh gosh, I'm terrible at erming and I will edit erms out afterwards, <laughs> as well as that bit. Um so the idea for this podcast came about uh, because I met uh, the wonderful uh, TJ Talley when he visited Fiji and we talked about our love of movies and how interesting it was to deconstruct them and discuss them as not only uh, wonderful forms of entertainment, but uh, expressions of culture and ideology and, and, and all these kind of very interesting things. So I, I'm hoping we're going to get into that when we discuss this movie. Another reason is that when the film came out, I think my understanding of of the critical responses and, and responses from friends was that it was not the people. A lot of people thought it wasn't as awesome or interesting as I thought it was. So I'm I'm looking forward to. Uh, I, basically, I think they're all wrong, and uh, um, hopefully, we're going to prove prove them wrong today. <laughs> So uh, what I'm going to do now is give up the floor to each of you individually to introduce yourselves. And as much or as little as you want to say, I know from experience that any any attempts to sum, sum you up myself or have someone else sum me up just because it turns into a real cringe fest. So um, TJ, perhaps you would like to go first. My pleasure, as the person who knows all four of the people here. Um, so, hi, um, I'm TJ Talley. I am a professor of African history at the University of San Diego. Um, I am a queer Black American who uh, gallivants across the globe far too often. Um, and I was very delighted uh, to meet Ben in Fiji last year and start the sort of conversation rolling. Um, but yes, I work specifically on intersections of race, gender, and colonialism. And as an African-American that does African history, Black Panther holds a very particular set of interests for me. So yeah. Much obliged. Antonietta, you're next on my screen as we go around. Okay. Hi, hi everybody. Uh, nice to be here. I am colleagues uh, with DJ Tali. Uh, Dr. Tali. And my name is Antonieta Mercado. I am also a professor of communication at the University of San Diego. I am from Mexico City, from a place called Nezahualcoyotl, uh, the name of an uh, poet. And um, I study practices of communication and um, decolonization among uh, indigenous migrants from Mexico. And I also uh, study comparative racial and class and gender formations. Uh, colonialism doesn't look the same in the United States that, in, that, that it looks in Latin America or Africa or elsewhere, but still we suffer uh, its consequences uh, in particular locations. So that's what I do. And I am very interested in movies. I teach criticism. I teach uh, communication. And I am, uh, as you were saying, a believer on uh, that popular culture is a site of struggle, as Stuart Hall will say, um, and I'm I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much, uh, and Nikki. 
All right, so introductions, let's see. Um, my name is Nikki Helms and I am a licensed midwife in the state of California. I have no idea why I'm here with these astute, uh, amazingly highly educational people. Um, I know at Dr. TJ Talley and have for years. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Dr. Talley invited me because I always have an opinion about stuff. So here we are. <laughs> that is awesome. Opinions are what uh, we're after. Um, and I think if I remember correctly, this was like maybe almost a year ago when the film came out and I was waiting on my on my social media for TJ to say that he'd watched it. And when he watched it, I was like, can we do a podcast? Uh, and then I think, Nikki, you might have said I'd like to be a part of that on that thread. So you kind of got yeah, and I think I might have meant like, can I listen? I might have meant that. I don't know that I meant. Please let me well, talk. Well, I think it was more like, oh, I just want to hear what happened. No, we're glad you're here, love. <laughs> yes, I think we're going to be uh, a great team, the four of us today. Um, so I, I thought we would start off just to get a sort of idea of where where we're all coming from uh, uh, in terms of our uh, our love of movies. Uh, we've talked about why we think they're so interesting as, as sites of resistance and as, as entertainment and as important communications of culture. Um, but perhaps we could just mention uh, a few of our, our favorite movies so that people who are listening kind of get a bit more of a feel of who, who we are individually. And, and we'll go the other way around this time, if you don't mind. Nikki, I'd love to know what, what movies uh, you, you, uh, you enjoy generally. Generally, I enjoy movies that entail the paths, like divergent paths crossing. Um, people who may never have met each other any other way are now in a situation together. Um, my my prime example of that is um, my what I think my absolute favorite movie is 200 Cigarettes. Um, if you have not seen that, it will be very difficult to see it if you haven't seen it yet because it's hard to get a hold of. Um, but 200 Cigarettes is one. Go is another where again, there are these four or five or six disparate storylines that are happening. And then those storylines meet each other in these really interesting ways. Um, Pulp Fiction is another one where that happens. Storylines are crossing, things are happening and other people may not be aware of the things that are happening, but then they find out. It's just really, I think it's just really interesting watching the interactions of different people individually and then watching those individuals interact with each other. So, you know, it gives me a really full sense of understanding like who this person is, where this person is coming from, who this other person is, where they're coming from, and then what happens when that comes together. Is it going to be this beautiful, you know, synchronous, harmonious thing, or is it going to be this ugly explosion and the, and you know, I'm I'm fascinated. I wait, I can't wait to see what happens next. Wow, that's uh, for for me straight off. That sounds kind of just like a like a like a metaphor for watching a movie, anyway, right? When you sort of uh, your your world as the viewer uh, and the and the world that is created by the film kind of come together, and and you and, and is it going to be a big ugly explosion or is it going to be beautifully harmonious? Um, I, I I love that idea, uh, and I haven't seen Two Hundred Cigarettes. I'm, I'm ashamed to say, but the the other two films I love. I will try. I'm hanging up. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> um, and Tony Hector, um, maybe uh, you could tell us about some of your favorite films now. Absolutely. It is always hard to watch a movie for me as a media critic. 
I'm always thinking about power, hegemony, cultural industries, and uh, how much you know they expand on the movie. But uh, my very favorite movie is Amores Perros uh, by Alejandro González Iñárritu. And um, I love that movie. It is um, filmed in Mexico City, in my city. I grew up there and it reflects, I mean, it doesn't have to do a lot of um, effects, right? To to convey what Nikki was saying, that intricacy of, of several stories, uh, crossing paths, and also um, to convey drama and to convey uh, urgency and even violence. It doesn't have to have explosions or things like that. So. It was, um, I mean, it, it speaks a lot. I'm, I grew up in a barrio in Mexico City, and it speaks a lot about how life is there. And I really watch, like to watch that movie. My other favorite movie is a Peruvian movie by uh, Javier Fuentes, and it's called Contracorriente, un undertone. And it's also an amazing movie, a queer story, beautiful, beautiful movie. I love it. I have other movies that are my favorite. Um, Almost never mainstream movies, but I really love Wakanda Forever. Uh, I really love it. And I am ready to to talk about why it was a great movie, even though it is a mainstream movie. Thank you very much. Yeah, what a wonderful segue from from films about um, colliding narratives to Amores Pelos. A wonderful, wonderful movie, uh, which I have not seen for a long time. I need to rewatch that. TJ, what do you got for us? Yeah, so... I um, I think I sometimes surprise my friends where they expect me to say sort of like a very highfalutin foreign film that is sort of like edgy and thoughtful. And I will say without any regrets, um, my first off, my favorite types of movies are ones I prize, um, you know, quick thinking, tight writing and, and wit, right? And so there's lots of movies that, that fit in this, but I am unashamed in that my favorite movie has been my favorite movie since I was eight years old. And I find new reasons why I like it. Um, and it is it is the 1985 cult classic film Clue, uh, and so Clue, starring Tim Curry, Leslie Ann Warren, Michael McKean, um, it is it's the how like sort of the whip crack of how fast the dialogue is, right? Like, um, why would anyone want to kill the cook? Dinner wasn't that bad. How can you make jokes at a time like this? It's my defense mechanism, some defense mechanism. I was the killer. I'd kill you next, right? And so like these sorts of levels of just fast-paced wit. I mean. And so for me, movies like that are that they get me going. I I will say similarly, um, movies that lean into the absurd um or so the nonsensical. And so I would say actually amusingly, uh, one of my favorites is an Almodovar film, right? It's Mujeres al Borde de Notaque de los Nervios, right? So like Women on the Edge of a Nervous Breakdown is one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, first off, literally um a there's a running gag of a picture of barbiturates laced gazpacho um, when someone is busy running from a weekend of sex-starved Muslim terrorists is truly a line that I never thought that I would say is one of my favorite lines, but it's it's brilliant, right? Um, and then I would also say um, sort of in the classic vein of, of movies that, that I can watch endlessly, right? So another unreasonably witty movie that like Tender Cigarettes is, is hard to get now. It was really big in the late 90s. It was another cult classic. Uh, is Drop Dead Gorgeous, which is a mockumentary about a beauty pageant in Mount Rolfs, Minnesota, home of the world's largest ball of twine. And um, and then I would say, finally, the other film that I could watch endlessly is um, uh, Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind, right? So a sort of meditation on 
uh, love and hope and this sort of idea of like, even if you could go back and do things, right? And it's a movie that historians love, like even if we knew these things, would we still do them? And the answer is yes. So um, witty, absurd movies, ones like this, but I'm also super excited because much like Antonietta, um, I can't not turn parts of my brain on when I'm working, right? So as a historian, I'm always thinking about how are these things playing out? So notice I've given you no historical drama pieces because fuck them. Um, they make me feel like I'm at work. Nice. Um, I like the way that everyone did a little dance uh, on camera when you mentioned uh, the film Clue. It's a, a fantastic movie that I, I haven't seen for a while. I, I actually I watched um, um, Ready or Not a couple of days ago and it had shades of that in there. I, I, I quite enjoyed that film. I've been meaning to watch it for some time. And, and I love Eternal Sunshine, one of my absolute favourites. I, I like like you uh, and like Antonietta I, and and like Nikki. I like complex narrative films. I find it sometimes difficult to switch off my critical brain, uh, being a, a film critic and scholar. Um, and people often expect me to pick films that, that I don't end up picking. I, I think just as a, as a quick insight into the kind of movies I like, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, which has been my favorite since uh, since I sort of started studying film uh, as a teenager is uh, Harvey, which is an old movie starring Jimmy Stewart, um, who's uh, a, a, a crackpot and a rumhead whose best friend is a six foot invisible bunny rabbit. And I like that movie's meditation on how we choose to look at the world, I suppose would be a simple way of putting it. And mo most recently, I really, really like so many other people. In, I'm on the bandwagon with this one. Enjoyed everything, everywhere, all at once. I thought it was a, a profoundly brilliant movie that, that uh, jumped straight into my top 10 of all time. But yes, that's, that's, uh, so that's the introduction stuff. Thank you very much, everybody. Now we're going to get on to uh, talk about Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And I, I thought... I thought we it, rather than we'll probably want to refer back to the to the first movie. Um, we, we we won't we won't kind of put a section up to it, but but if anyone wants to refer back to it, of course, because contextually I think it's really important. Um, I, I will I will kind of start us off, but I'm going to say very little because I'm I'm, I'm super interested in in what you guys thought about the film. For, for, I, I I kind of already indicated this, but as much as I loved Black Panther when it came out. As, as much as it was an incredibly profound cultural moment to have this movie come out, for me, Wakanda Forever is, is a slightly better film. It's, it's, a, it's, it's less celebratory in tone and uh, it's more complex emotionally. It's, it's grounded in kind of trauma, which, which in, in terms of looking at the, uh, the second part of a trilogy, you often find things get a bit murkier and a bit darker. And, and so it, it satisfies my than my need for a trajectory to go dark for the second installment. Um, in particular, after the opening sequence um, in which T'Challa dies um, and Suri, Shuri can't save him, the the flashing up of the Marvel logo in absolute silence, and it's all just pictures of Chadwick Boseman, is I've, I watched it three times at the cinema and every single time I it found myself welling up for that emotional Start. So, so for, for, for me, uh, for, for a whole bunch of reasons, it was kind of a, a more powerful film. But I just wondered what some of your uh, initial um, impressions of the film were. We'll, we'll go for kind of personal reflections first before we start putting different hats on and analysing it from, from other perspectives. Antonietta, maybe I, I could ask you to start this time. Uh, thank you. My first impression, uh, the movie made me cry for in many many times. Uh, it made me cry at the beginning 
uh, with the funeral scene. I know actors uh, try to, to portray several traditions of funeral. Um, I, I probably, my, my, my colleagues here uh, could tell more about those traditions coming from different parts of Africa, uh, but that, that felt really vivid. Uh, the tribute to Chadwick, uh, Chadwick Bosman and um, and as the movie went on, for me it was very special because I know the actor who did who played Namor. He was born in the in a periphery in Mexico City, the same as me, just a neighborhood next to Nezahualcoyotl called Ecatepec. And um, he has a lot of history of fighting for racial representation in Mexican uh, popular culture. And he brought all that into the, the movie. And I think the director also listened to a lot of cultural um, consultants because the the depiction of indigenous culture is very, uh, is it, fictional, but it's very true to, to what it is. And that, I mean, just the care of a mainstream movie portraying indigenous cultures in such depth and such care, and also the fact that that uh, black and brown folk are there uh, mediated by colonial trauma, right? And it's very, very evident, right? It's very evident. So that's, uh, I think that's the, the part that was way more elaborated, way better for me from the first one. This was very, make it, made the movie very political for me and very deep, you know, I felt the movie and I felt every every time um, uh, we were about right to fight uh, um, uh, African Americans and, and indigenous people and then somehow it was it was resolved, but it was that tension, right? The colonial tension. Yeah, absolutely. That was that was uh, one of the one of the things I really enjoyed about it too, and, and something I have a few things I might want to say about later. But I think uh, talking about colonialism, post-colonialism, TJ, I think I'm going to tag you in. My whole job. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's one of those things. So first off, yeah, I strapped in in the theater in the cinema, and I was like, all right, let's get ready for this emotional roller coaster. And yeah, and I sobbed like four different times. Um, and so one of the things I thought about, one of the reasons why I genuinely enjoyed the first movie is as, as an African-American who works on and studies colonial Africa, right? And African colonialism, right? Like it is a, it is a way in which African-Americans are confronting and thinking about the legacies of enslavement, but also their desire for home, right? The first movie is a movie all about it's the, the first line is Baba, tell us a story of home, right? And there's it's very, very fitting, right? The second movie is much more, and I think as Antonietta says so well, what does this moment look like for us to think about our collective traumas? It's a movie I think also that couldn't have been made prior to COVID-19. I think a uh, language of collective shared trauma in a way, which is not to say that we did not have this before this, but I think the more recent memory of this sort of shared experience of death right makes also chadwick's death more mean more immediately impacting but also i think for us to think about this and for me right um how do we think about africans as one of the things that i'm happy to talk about this forever right is i am a scholar also of black indigeneity and so one of the things that i do is i look at african peoples and their experiences under colonialism and how they are marked as indigenous peoples and i think that there is often a sort of understanding of indigeneity that that 
forecloses Blackness, right? And so often we think about Indigenous peoples when they go Native North Americans and mainly Oceania, mainly Aboriginal and, and Maori people, occasionally Pacific Islanders, right? If we think about it okay, in Fiji, right? Like other things like this, but like Indigeneity is often not extended to Africa. And there's lots of reasons for this, one of which is the sort of imagining of post-coloniality, right? Oh, well, you got it, so you're no longer called my subject, which is not necessarily true, but also um, substantially a historical relationship of anti-Blackness, right? In which indigeneity is often actually articulated independently vis-a-vis by not being Black. And so we talk about how Afro-pessimists would say things like, slavery meant that Black people were forced outside of the bounds of the human. We would say that Indigenous peoples also are people who are consumed and acquired and dominated for their lands and spaces. But so to talk about Black indigeneity is really important. And one of the things that I love is seeing how the Wakandans and the and Namor's people, right, will themselves, they see themselves and they are seen as simultaneously Indigenous peoples, peoples of the land and sea, right, of their own space. The other thing that I, I have to talk about in the more traditional way, because I could talk about this forever, is traditionally, one of the things I find really fascinating, right, is that in North America, right, again, where this is written, the 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 distinctions and the challenges we have sometimes between African-Americans and Native Americans, indigenous peoples of North and South America are often that claims of belonging and claims of identification are often rooted for Native Americans around claims of land. This is our land, this is the land from which we originate. And African-American claims are often rooted through sea. And by this, I mean, we were brought over the water we were brought here and the labor has brought us into this place. And so there was something also profound about seeing those two things reverse. And so seeing that um, these people are peoples of the sea and we are peoples of the land is a very interesting sort of juxtaposition that stayed with me the whole time. So I said a lot of words. I have a lot of feelings about it. I'm super jazzed. Um, I cried too many times. Also, um, I feel like, you know, who doesn't get enough attention because there's so many things happening in this goddamn film is Riri. Uh, our sweet Riri Williams, not, I mean, Rihanna, that song's okay. But like, we're talking about Riri, the, the, the character, right? A genius level black woman, you know, scientist builder that rivals Iron Man. And so I love that. And so I feel like she she needs more flowers. Incredible. Good start. And some really, really interesting ideas in there that I would love to come back to and, and unpick later on, especially uh, about Riri. I mean, Shuri already put Iron Man to shame in the first film. Now we go even younger with Riri. Uh, so, yeah, N- Nikki, uh, let's come to you now. Uh, personal responses to to the movie when you when you first saw it or when you had repeated viewings of it. What really struck you? Well, um, I was just talking about this because when we were, uh, you know, having our text conversation back and forth, I was saying that I need to watch this movie again because it's been a minute. Um, But what I pulled out, and of course, you know, this has everything to do with my profession, my career. I pulled out the fact that there is this matrilineage that keeps happening in this movie. Right. And my daughter was asking me, she was like, wait a minute. So T'Challa was king. I was like, yeah. And she's, but his mother is queen. I said, yeah. And she's like, so when he died, does she become queen again? I said, yeah. Well, what happens when they find, you know, why is Shuri now so important? You know, what it, where, where does the power reside now that there isn't a king? Who, who's doing what? 
And then we know, I mean, what happens, I'm going to assume everybody's seen the movie, so we know what happens at the end of the movie, right, where Shuri doesn't necessarily take on the mantle of being in the royal lineage. She goes off and does something else. So I find the matriarchy in this movie so impactful and powerful because not only are they, you know, not only is it a bunch of women that are out there, you know, kicking ass and taking names, it's women of color, you know, in almost every scene, there is at least one, right? Woman of color. I'm still a little confused about Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character. I really have some questions about that. But her as a, as a female aside, the rest of the women in the movie all are these very strong figures, all are these very intelligent figures, all are these very, like, skilled in the art of war figures that you never really see women portraying. So I found that to be incredibly fascinating and thought for like a half a second, I was going to go take like a martial arts class so I could get myself a spear. Then I changed my mind because that would be a mistake. So, but yeah, the, the, the matrilineage and the, the, just the empowerment of women in this movie, I find just really rewarding. Yeah. That, that, that's something that I absolutely loved as well. Uh, um, as, as, just kind of mentioned uh, something that was very important in the first Black Panther film, but that seems to ramp up next level in Wakanda forever. And and for me, I couldn't help but see uh, a sort of analog between um, having uh, taught a little bit of uh, American uh, history and culture and having seen um, just a few years before um, Ava DuVernay's film 13th, seeing this analogue between this idea of uh, the removal of black leaders from African-American society historically uh, through imprisonment, through death, through uh, assassinations and these kind of things, and the idea of strong matriarchal and matrilinear lines having to sort of uh, step in and raise families and and uh, in this case, in the film, the, the nation. Uh, I wonder if there's somewhere we can go uh, uh, from that, uh, TJ, uh, in terms of the, the the representations of 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 strong black and brown femininity in the film, yeah, no, I'm super down. Um, so I mean, obviously, there's two things that I think of immediately, right? Is um, you know, traditional in in black American households, right? We have a particular pride of place and strength, particularly for for women and mothers. And this was even so negatively depicted in the 1960s in the Moynihan Report, right, which sort of pathologized historically that one of the things that was broken about Black families was this, the strength of the women because of the absence of the men. And and so, and this was sort of a white pathologization of Black families, right? Um, but this is this is an essential part of Black American survivance in, in the U.S. But similarly, right, there are so many, there are multiple instances, especially in Southern Africa, of the power of uh, in in monarchies and dynasties, the actual power of queen mothers, right? And so specifically in Zulu culture, right, there is this, but most notably um, historically in the monarchy of Eswatini, right, formerly known as Swaziland. So the current monarch is an absolute monarch. We can have lots of criticisms about, about his, his reign, but one of the things is that historically the monarch um, rules through and with the consent and through the approval of the Inflobukaz, the great she-elephant, which is the queen mother. It's her name. It's sort of the Inflobukaz. And so thinking about this sort of way in which that connection to the mother is what gives um, authority and legitimacy. And it's one of the things I love about in the character of Magunda, of 
Angela Bassett's character who did who did do the thing. Um, uh, as we see um, Ms. Bassett doing this, um, this, this role of service. And it's very interesting too, because stylistically she is depicted in a lot of traditional Southern African garments, especially in the first movie, the traditional hat that she wears, right? She has this sort of reverse conical hat, which is a traditional Southern African and specifically Zulu and Unibele type of headgear that is worn by married women to signify their status. So it's interesting that that these they're very specific cultural references that go into the making of her character and also the way that she would reassume power. It is um, not unheard of. Um, when the uh, Zulu king, uh, Goodwill Zotini, died of COVID-related complications um, last year, um, his spouse, his one of his wives, also briefly assumed power as the, the continuance of the monarchy first. So this is, this is not an uncommon tradition. And she would have been seen as the caretaker for the monarchy had she also not succumbed to COVID complications among them. Fascinating, man. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting stuff. Antonietta, I wonder if uh, you have anything to add to this discussion of the, the representations of femininity in the movie. Well, I do. Uh, one of the one of the um, the themes that I I listed was this very powerful black women, right, um, in the story. Uh, I that's that's uh, beautifully represented by my two colleagues here, and I I would like to to retake more in what uh, TJ was saying about African indigeneity and Latin American indigeneity. In this case, the representation of Talocan, uh, Mayan, and there's there is a mix between Mayan and Nahua representations there. Uh, the city under the water, and the directors made that compromise, right? They, they name it Tlalocan. There is a real in the Nahuatl language, uh, Tlalocan. The Tlalocan is uh, the place for Tlaloc. And they they made this mix because they wanted this city to be located in Yucatan, a peninsula where the Maya live. And that's that's the, the, the fantasy that goes there. But the representation is pretty accurate. Um, what I, I like about these uh, practices of indigenous resurgence, right? Right, and you can see them across the the two groups, right? The the Wakandans and the Talocans. Um, I I really like uh, how uh, there is this concept of um, uh, technologies of the spirit by uh, actually an African thinker, uh, Malidoma Patrice Somé from Burkina Faso. And I remember I was reading a couple of years ago his book on um, uh, the wisdom of Africa about talking about indigeneity. And, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm reading about uh, Toltecayot, right? Like indigeneity in Mesoamerica. And that's, uh, you can see reflected that in the movie. You can see the the way they they created the Taloka and the way they, the, there's these people who are in the ocean, under the ocean, right? And Namora, Namora, Right, Tenoch Huerta and Mabel Cadena come out of the ocean, and and they it, it runs contrary of what people say about progress and development. Right, usually the West has um, developed on the technologies of the matter, and that's why they need mining and they need the there is a mineral. Right, I I forgot the name of the mineral that they were fighting about or the, the Westerners wanted and the, the Wakandans had it and the Talocans had it. There's a mineral. That's a quintessential colonial narrative, right? There is a mineral and they need it and they they are capable to go anywhere 
deceive and enslaved and displace and kill anything in order to get the mineral. But uh, Malidoma Patrice Somme talks about the technologies of the spirit. And when you see that, I that was very, very moving for me to see the Talocans emerging from the ocean, uh, having, instead of a ship, having uh, riding a whale, right? And instead of weapons, using water, like Tlaloc, right? The, the deity of water, using water as a weapon. And that really counters any kind of idea that, that we have been told as colonized people that the West, Westerners are developed and more civilized, right? They develop the technologies of the matter, but indigenous people develop the technologies of the spirit. And you can see that, that closeness to nature. And that doesn't mean that you are undeveloped. That doesn't mean that you are uncivilized, right? All those narratives that we have been told as colonized people that Europeans came here to civilize us, right? That was a very common, some very common dominant narrative. Um, you can see the development of the city of Talocan under the water with technology that is much more in tune with nature, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean that's fascinating as well, the, the, the way that it's sort of, um, uh, it, 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 to, to build on what you're saying, the idea that colonialism historically relied on like this mastery of the water and mastery of the oceans, right? And then, uh, but, but rather than having mastery over nature, these more the more advanced kind of uh, uh, collaborative approach to, to to the water is is really interesting in in this movie. Yeah, TJ, you were nodding quite a bit there. Did you did you want to come in? I just will really briefly say, like, uh, first off. I, I love Technology of the Spirit. It made me very happy to hear Burkinabe being, being cited. Um, but also, yeah, it's one of the things that's so initially powerful about Black Panther as a comic, right? It comes out in 1966, right? The sort of idea of like, here's an African nation that has its own resource that it has, instead of being um, consumed by these resources, right? What we call the resource curse, right? Places that are um, so rich and abundant in resources then tend to not have that um, actually spread to their populations because they are very quickly, they, they're taken out of these communities, right? The, the resources, right? So thinking about, for example, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is sort of rich in, in so many mineral resources, and it has one of the lowest, you know, GDPs per person, right? Like, and and so thinking about Wakanda instead is, is, a, is a slap in the face to all of this, right? It's saying like, look, we have guarded and stewarded our resources and it has kept us strong and safe. And so I do love that. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The 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 vibranium, and, and I love that very early on in this um, in this film, you have the two very interesting geographical locations come uh, come up in terms of I would say if I remember correctly, the Americans and the French trying to steal the vibranium, and that's Mali and, uh, and the Atlantic Ocean. And I think there's uh, maybe some things. I'm getting more nods to, from you, TJ. Maybe we will come back to you for that. What's it? I mean, I love as as a film scholar. I love I, 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 I as you do, Antonietta. As I'm I'm constantly thinking, oh, that's an interesting place to set that action. That's an interesting place to set that action. So very very early on, they're indexing those two geographical locations and the American and the French. Uh, yeah, where do you want to go with that, TJ? The only thing I want to say very briefly is it is not an accident to make it France. Right, like, and specifically, right, and it's it's odd because that is not as commonly known, I think, to Western audiences, right, to American audiences. We tend not to think of this, but France has maintained its a, a full military political presence 
throughout all of West and Central Africa, right? It's it 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 granted independence in 1960 unilaterally, but also maintained the right and and attempt to always militarily intervene at any point that was convenient to France's interest. And and to this day, right, West African currencies are still pegged to the euro, right? Um, that they are currently still like absolutely tied to um, to French currency and directly seen as sources of intervention, even with um, ostensibly less obviously belligerently right-wing pres- uh, leaders like Macron, who is not being seen as sort of like hardcore anyway, still perceives, right, that this is France's backyard. So when, when you have the Americans and the French, which of course never let the British off the hook, but like when the Americans and the French are very explicitly arguing over their claims to what they should have access to in, in it's it's done purposefully and it's done historically. And so did I did I cackle in the theater when France got their ass handed to them by Angela Bassett? Maybe. And by maybe I mean maybe, but yes, I did and I loved it. Yeah, excellent. I, I was I was thinking, I remember thinking about this, uh how the how the British are getting off kind of lightly. And then I thought we did kind of get our ass handed to us in the first film with all the British Museum stuff and the yeah. So, you know, we uh rightfully so, we we got told to. Um uh, Antonietta, I wonder if there's anything you'd like to add there. I think my colleague said this. Uh, I just uh, remember you made me remember the name that this goes by the France of Freak, right? Yes, I mean France. France is very tricky, right? It promoted itself as a democratic with the French Revolution and and deposing the monarchy, but they were very colonial. I mean, just uh, how they made um, Haiti suffer, right? Haiti. Is the first uh, country in the in the Americas that gains independence after the United States, and it's it's a black nation, right? And France make them pay for their freedom, right? And and they they do the same in Africa, in different Cameroon and other countries in Africa that they they invaded and but but um, they have a good press, right? The French, they well, we are liberté, fraternité, and whatever it comes from the French Revolution, right? And we don't think that they were very colonial as uh, and still intervening those in those countries uh, colonially. I mean, colonialism hasn't really, it's, it's not really gone. We still live under a colonial world. And that's something that is, is sometimes hard to explain to students or to colleagues, right? Who even argue that, well, but colonialism was good, right? We had all this technology. Well, we're still living under colonial structures and anti-blackness, for example, is one of the colonial uh, legacies that we have worldwide. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, in the part of the world that I'm in now as well, there's there's a big French presence in uh, New Caledonia having referenda and uh, of course French Polynesia, Tahiti, the, the, the history of the nuclear testing, it's all, all stuff that I've been very, very interested in uh, recently. And I knew nothing about before I came here, you know, so, so again, it's interesting how, like you say, France has this good press. Nikki, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I mean, you like films where, where worlds collide, right? And, and this is a film, the, the Black Panther movies are films where the whole world is coming, kind of coming into collision, nations and states and cultures. Well, you know, I was, I was laughing because I, I was listening to TJ talk about how he cackled out loud about the French, um, you know, being shown the mirror, basically. And I laughed too, because I, like I said, was wanting to rewatch the film before we spoke. And so that was the part that I like left 
the living room at was because that was when it was happening. And then I came in here to have this discussion. And so uh, my daughter and I were laughing because we were like, the, just the way that the shots were set up to show like, here's the American guy. He looks like he knows something's up. Here's the French chick. She looks all smug. Like she knows what's happening. And then back to the American guy who looks like, oh shit, the jig is up. And then the French woman is like, no, it's not. I'm infallible. And then they march in like six French dudes and hand them back to France and go, you're welcome. And the way that the French representative responded, like she couldn't, she just couldn't. She just was like, oh, damn. Um, so I, I do rather find a lot of joy in that when that happens, when people are caught by the short and curlies doing shit they shouldn't be doing, right? They're caught out and we know what that feels like, right? We've all been children. We've all been caught out doing something we shouldn't be doing. And so I really liked the, the sequence of the film. I like the sequence of the shots where they show what happened and they see you, they show Queen Ramonda and she's sitting there like, mm-hmm, yeah, uh-huh, you go ahead and keep talking. I got something in my hip pocket for all of y'all, just wait. And you just see her with this calm, intelligent, strong presence, not saying anything because typically what we see from women, black women in particular, black women in particular who are in positions of power, you know, the, the filmmakers will make them do or say or make these sort of stereotypical physical gestures that people will almost notoriously associate with black women. First of all, I didn't see any of that. That made me super happy. A little, a little, um, I don't know. Not, I can't think of the word. It was a little like, why they're not, oh, so we're not doing that? Oh, we don't have to do that? Because I really like doing that, right? It's what people expect of me. So I don't mind getting into it like that. But I will say that I really like the fact that, you know, again, you see her intelligence. You see her, you know, reading the art of war, you know, you see her, you see that intelligence and you see that, you know, not only has she studied it, but she's mired in this intelligence and in this way to be protective of this country. Again, more matriarchy showing itself. But I really like the way that as the matriarch of the country, she put the rest of the world in its place. And she did it in a way that was not name calling. She did it in a way that was not... You know, it wasn't ugly. It was very intelligent. It was very succinct and it was beautiful. And I think, you know, I think I must have heard TJ because I must have been in another theater and we were going, oh, damn. So I loved that part. Loved it and did and cackled and had that little Grinch smile in my mind like, <laughs> you got to hand it to you. And yes, I get that it was France and it was France on purpose because France has just this history in the world and in the United States in particular where everybody gives France like side eye, so much French side eye. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was it, it was very amusing to me uh, as well that the uh, French, I think that the, the foreign minister or something took to social media, did you, do you remember this? To say, hey, 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 what's all this about? What are these representations of French? We are so innocent in all of this. But yeah, um, I, I think that the moving, uh, discussing Angela Bassett and discussing performance is, is something else I would really like to get into. I'm not going to talk too much about uh, Angela Bassett because I think TJ might want to take that one. 
But what I will say, just to, just to, another kind of segue, I hope, um, is that I really loved in that scene that the American Secretary of State was played by, I think, Richard Schiff, I think his name is, who used to be in the West Wing. Remember that? So it's sort of like, yeah, he is like this authentic representation of, of uh, US politics, both in, in, in the media. <laughs> you know, he has this kind of consistency for me. And I, I, I like that. That made me kind of chuckle, as well as the, the French side, and as well as so many uh, other amazing uh, comedy moments in this film that we've already said is largely about tra- trauma and, um, and grief. Uh, but yeah, sorry, I, I digress. P- uh, performances. No, I was going to say that I really, I really appreciated Okoye's performance. I, A, love her. B, I was saying, again, I was watching this movie and my daughter and I are having this discussion because I'm trying to like get all ginned up for our conversation. Um, but what I was saying to her was the fact that I enjoyed Okoye's dignity. I enjoyed that very much because she too, very much like friends, had her ass handed to her by the authorities and because she messed up, right? And Queen Ramonda was angry at her and she was stripped of her wrote her uh, rank and she was stripped of her role and yet and still she was still dignified you know she didn't make a fool of herself she wasn't begging and pleading you know she made one heartfelt plea and then okay then she stopped she went on about her life she was still upset about what happened but she went on and did other stuff you know and i have just the most respect for that for people who aren't trying to you know, the, the performance of that actor, because that character wasn't trying to like whine and beg and talk smack about the queen or anything like that. She knew she was wrong. She got smacked for it. She took her licks and she left. That, I just, I loved that performance. That's, that whole scene was like, oh, okay, well, I messed up. I gotta go. Um, so I really like the way that a lot of the women in the film were not men- made to debase themselves when they messed up. They accepted it like, oh, I messed up. Okay, cool. I'm going to go do this thing now. That's either going to fix it, make it better, or we're just going to move on. But they didn't spend a lot of time, as many female characters do, they didn't spend a lot of time dwelling on their shortcomings. They didn't spend a lot of time dwelling on the things that they messed up or mistakes that they made, they had dignity. So that particular character had so much of it. I just, I, it stands out to me as well as all of the Dormilaji, but she was the one with the most lines. So um, she made them, she got the opportunity to make the most impact. I, I love that scene also. Uh, there's the real striking image of, of her putting her, her her spear in the in the ground, right? And, and walking away, you know, like you say, very, very kind of gracefully taking taking the responsibility after that one plea. And I, I remember that being a very striking image as a close-up of the spear and you see her exiting in the background. Um, beautiful. Uh, any other thoughts about any other performances? Yes, I I would like to make a mix uh, critique. There is something uh, that I didn't like and it relates to what you said at the beginning of the movie, that at the beginning of this uh, talk, when you said that people said that this movie wasn't as good as the first one and you disagreed, I I think... Um, I have been trying to analyze it with the tools that I have, right, uh, with this um, culture industry's concept of expropriation of schematism, where they, I, I was not very familiar with Marvel, uh, uh, that that in the Marvel stories, Namor was a villain, right? And when I was reading 
I was reading the press and I was reading everywhere that it was a villain. And when I went to the movie, I was expecting to see a, a person doing ill things to others, right? And uh, I mean, he kills Ramonda, which is terrible, but he doesn't kill Ramonda because he because he's evil, right? He's not, I think it's a pro- product of, of that confrontation they have uh, that is mediated by colonialism. And also the, the um, I don't see, I don't walk out of the movie seeing Namor. Namor is a god. Namor is Quetzalcoatl, is Kukulkan. But Namor is, is uh, and you can see the representation, the indigenous representation, you see indigenous rappers, you see practices of resurgence, you see so much love and so much care on the representation and the acting of the Namor and and uh, Namora and people from the Talocan. Uh, I don't think it was understood in the U.S. because there is a lot of miseducation about what indigeneity means and what it is, right? I don't think it was understood. And everybody thought it was was just a villain that was doing ill will, but Namor is trying. He reaches out to Ramonda to, to talk about extraction and to talk about colonialism. I really love the way he was depicted as a tlaquilo, as a man of knowledge, right? As uh, he's painting a mural and, and painting in the pictographic language before the European languages. It was, it was painting and writing was the same word, right? You were a tlaquilo, you were a writer and a painter. You will do the same. He does that. He's in the Talocan uh, when he's talking to um, Suri, right? And he's also a Tlamatine. He's also a man of knowledge. Uh, and uh, one of the, I forgot the name of the person in, in uh, Queen Ramonda's court. Uh, there's a guy who says, well, you're treating, you're, you're dealing with a god. This is not your enemy, right? You should respect him. All the things that Namor does, uh, are embedded in this colonial trauma. He's trying to reach out to make friends with the Wakandas. And there is this misunderstanding that is not Wakandas per se, it's because of the mediation of colonialism. And I don't think that was understood. And, and that's why I have been getting my, my head around it. Uh, this expropriation of schematism is that Cultural industries have something pre-thought for us. Everybody knew that Namor was a villain, so Namor is a villain. And they didn't get this nuance of he was trying to reach out. He was a god. Uh, he was the representation of Quetzalcoatl on Earth and Kukulkan for the Mayan, right? And there is all this revival and, and all this love that went into making this movie. The signs, for example, they come from uh, codices, the Lilith Talocan, uh, the, the music that you hear comes from uh, indigenous rap, Mare Advertencia Lirica, who is a Zapotec rapper, and also Pad Boy, who is an indigenous Mayan rapper. I mean, all that gets lost into their villains, right? And I, I, I worry about that. I worry about that interpretation. I really worry. I mean, all the love that went into making the movie, that's, and, and the representation, making the representation accurate. Uh, that's what moved me to watch it several times and also to try to explain that other part, that indigeneity and the uh, connection to Earth and the connection to each other that is reflected on the movie. Yeah, uh, it's 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 incredible uh, how how much uh, love and attention has gone into constructing uh, this this culture, and and it's something I'd love to talk about a little a little later. But but perhaps uh, TJ, you want to carry on this discussion for now in terms of 
performances based? Sure. I think, um, yeah, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, we all agree that Angela Bassett did the thing. Um, uh, Like, I think that there's this sort of moment where she has to carry the chops off in this film, right? Like, she has to, especially when she has her very dramatic, my son is dead, um, right, sort of moment, right? Like, there is, she has to match the audience's sense of bereavement and horror and betrayal that are happening. And she also has to does it, does it with purpose. And she doesn't get the luxury, the character of Ramona doesn't get the same luxury that Shuri does in having an existential crisis, right? She's like, I gotta run shit. And I think that's very familiar. And I think she she does this brilliant, right? I think she plays it extraordinarily well. Um, and I think similarly, I have mixed feelings sometimes about Letitia's right, Letitia Wright's acting, which I think sometimes can be a little flat. Um, but I think that she was great here. And I think that the level of agony between rage and wanting to blame someone, and really also Namor is responsible for one of that. So like, so there is that very obvious hatred there, but the choice, like I think one of the things that Letitia Wright does so well in this in this movie is to demonstrate how much the choice to make an anti-colonial alliance in trauma costs. I think a lesser actor, you wouldn't have seen that. Like you can you can feel the cost because fighting them, even if it will be suicidal and mutually destructive is something that she is certainly entitled to do. She has every right to do. She has lost her brother and her mother. She has every right to do this. And she chooses not to. And you see what a what a risk that is. I would also say that um, given what she's given to work with, um, Lupita Nyong'o does an excellent job. She uh, is, you know, I think a little bit more tertiary in this movie, but also gets to do so much, right? It's also, I think, I think it was nice to allow her to at least have the briefest of moments actually being able to speak Spanish, right? As her character, right? So when she's when she's briefly there for, uh, you know, the you know the Spanish speaking Lupita Nyong'o to be able to do that, and for her as a who often sees herself in some ways as Afro Latina, like I think that's that was important. But I think that she does an excellent job in conveying the many the many different multiple allegiances she's got going on here. And then again, speaking of the French, going back to both Nikki and Antonietta. Then to name your son Toussaint, <laughs> that's there, as their cover name, is such a multiple level fuck you to France, right? Like the movie begins and ends with sort of puncturing sort of French hubris, right? And so even though the French foreign minister is like, this is not who we are. Actually it is, but this is absolutely who you are. And so I think that, but seeing those, and this goes back again to both Antonietta and Nikki's points, right? These are... The, the, the acting of three incredible black women in this, right? And and the things that they are expected to carry. And traditionally, in, in many different types of West African feminisms, there is this concept that women have to carry seven mountains on their backs, right? The expectation that African women are to carry the world and, and to make this work. And so I teach a class specifically on African feminisms, how African women uh, talk about ameliorate this. And we discussed this film's depiction of African women this semester in African feminism. So think about what are the expectations in terms of family and belonging that happen here? And one other concept that African feminists have talked about is that they have actually often tried, they have been not outright rejecting, but much more, much less taken with the concept of sisterhood. Um, they see sisterhood as predominantly a white feminist articulation of connection. And they have articulated instead an idea of co-mothering, 
as an idea of shared connection as co-mothers. And I think there's something interesting in that way in which that's the connection we finally see. We see Ansamo between Ramunda and um, Lupita Nyong'o's character, but then also later between Letitia Wright and Lupita Nyong'o's character, right? It is through a type of co-mothering that they see themselves able to, as, as women, through this raising of this child together, right? As this future. And I think there's sort of a connection there with that. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. So I, I'm kind of interested now. Now I've been struck. I'm just kind of uh, on, on the on the seat of my pants here a little bit, but I'm struck with this idea of like carrying mountains uh, on on their backs, and 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 uh, Antonietta talking about how densely layered and how much love there went into creating this kind of culture and and creating the the city of um, um, Talocan. Uh, for example, the music that plays, the the visuals. And I wondered, Antonietta, if you, you could maybe unpack what, what you thought about the creation. Because for me, even, even in such a long film, it felt maybe a little too short-lived, our visit to Taloka. Um, uh, so, so maybe you can pick out some more of the interesting aspects because it's, it's a, a condensed culture. There's references to so many things in there, I'm sure, that I missed and, and other people missed. Um, well, definitely the city is built in, I mean, the, the way the city is built and the, the whole history, right? There is a history, there is a Spanish empire there, a history that happens when the conquistadores came and, and subjugate the, the Mayan people and they decide to go under the ocean. Uh, in the peninsula, you see the, the way the caves are constructed. I don't know if you are if if you remember this, but in the peninsula of Yucatan there was the that meteorite, and there are like thousands of cenotes, which are holes in the in on the earth that that have water underneath, and that's sort of the aesthetics of the underwater, right? The the idea that um, cenotes are I mean they they were used by the Mayan and they keep being used by the Mayan to observe the sky. Um, you know, I grew up in the mountains in Mexico City, and and all the observations of the sky happen on on mountains. But when I visited the peninsula, I everything was flat, and they they had the cenotes, and and the the Mayan observed the sky through the cenotes, through the water reflected on the cenotes. So I thought about it as as an inverted mountain, and that's the aesthetics that that is portrayed on on the uh, underwater world they go because of colonization because of the violence namor's mother gets killed and he he has uh this jewel this piece of jewelry with him that he gives to um suri uh in 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 a gesture of alliance right this is very precious this has been on on his possession for centuries and and he gifts uh, this to suri because he really wants to make this alliance but the whole the whole uh, world underwater is very is very interesting. It is fictional, of course. It has the two elements. Uh, Tenoch Huerta is, uh, I think, he's partially Purépecha. He doesn't speak. He didn't speak Mayan, but he had a coach uh, who taught him and Namora who is uh, to speak Mayan because that's what the directors wanted. I mean, it was uh, somebody calls it. Um, it, it was. The combination of two indigenous cultures, right? Very prominent, the Nahua and the, the Mayan. By the way, the Aztecs were Nahua, right? But the Aztecs were not the only Nahuas. Uh, they were the latest one and the more dominant ones at some point when the Europeans came, but not all the Nahuas are Aztecs. 
So this is um, a combination of two, two very prominent Mesoamerican cultures that are still alive to our days. I mean, there are 1.5 Nahua speakers now, well, 1.5 million, sorry, 1.5 million Nahua speakers and about 3 million Mayan speakers. Those cultures are not gone. They are alive now. So it is, it, it was that depiction, right, of two very prominent cultures. And yes, it was fictionalized. The name Tlalocan, Tlalocan instead of Tlalocan, and the um, the Mayan depiction of of Kukulkan, right, and a lot of Nahua elements there, like the Binatlaquilo. But uh, Mesoamerican cultures also share a lot of um, similarities, even the, when the languages were not similar. They shared a lot of like the gods, right? Kukulkan is the feather serpent in Mayan. And Quetzalcoatl is a feather serpent in in Nahuatl. So, uh, and and Namor was a representative of the feather serpent of the. For for you to understand it, it'll be like a depiction of the yin and yang. The feather serpent for us is uh, the equilibrium of the universe, and the feather serpent is the creation, the creator of life. In the universe, so that's that's what Namor is representing, and I personally believe that he, the actor, the Huerta, does a very good job for the task. He had to speak an indigenous language that was not his original indigenous language. He learned to do it by for the movie, and he had to depict a, a mixture of two very prominent indigenous cultures, and they they are depicted there with care and with love. Uh, as I understand it, uh, Tenor Creta has been, uh, I think you sort of alluded to this earlier on, but maybe you could talk a bit about he's uh, been quite uh, political in his discussions and criticisms of uh, representation in uh, in sort of Latino-Latina world uh, and media. Um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about that as well. Yes, Tenor Huerta has been, uh, is the, the, has been forming this association called Poder Prieto, like Black Power, in Mexico, and he he raised very very quickly to the high levels of action in in many movies. He he worked in Narcos and in a lot of other movies. And he's very he's very outspoken, and he was very honest, asking why do I always get the bad guy? Why do I always get to play the bad guy? And and he, the answer he received often was because you are dark skin. In Mexico, he got that answer because it is Moreno. You are not blonde, so you don't get to play the good guy. And he got that a lot. And and he said that he that he uh, basically uh, raised he got, he hit a glass ceiling. And he had he he found himself in the, in Cannes uh, festival, right? Promoting, I think prom- he was promoting Narcos or one of these movies or series. And he said that he was sent to the table where all the crew was eating and the food was different. They had like uh, hors d'oeuvres and salmon on one table and they had chiles toreados and beans and, you know, in the other table. So he had that, those experiences in Mexico, right? Because Mexico is also a very racist place, right? We, we had the, Racism is manifested differently, but it's not necessarily less racist. Or narrative is that we mix, right? That we are all mixed and we're all mestizo, and therefore we we don't we don't have racism. 
And I hear that narrative in the United States a lot. Like, oh, now that we're mixing in 50 more years, we will all be mixed and we will not have racism anymore. And I will warn people about that because we have been mixing in, in Latin America for centuries and, and it's a very racist country. You see people who are prominent in politics, in entertainment, are generally white. If you see magazines in Mexico, you see, I mean, the, the people who get in to make it into magazines look like Norwegians, right? And they're Mexicans from Polanco or from, you know, very wealthy neighborhoods. So racism didn't disappear. We just don't have a language for it anymore. The language that we have is, oh, we're all the same because we're mixed. So I think Tenoch Huerta's uh, ability to bring that up, to bring his experiences in the entertainment industry on, and make them so prominent is very valuable. And his um, activism has been sparking some conversations about racism in Mexico and among the Latino community and particularly anti-blackness in the Latino community, right? Um, reckoning with a lot of issues we have been uh, loaded with that we had to, to reckon with, we had to discuss. So that has been a, a very big um, issue. And, and the prominence that Wakanda Forever gave him also propelled him to talk even more about racism and representation in popular culture. Excellent. Yeah, very illuminating. Thank you. I knew a little, a little bit about it, but now, now I know more. I, I wonder if there's anything, Nikki or TJ, you want to talk about in terms of the in terms of this discussion, representation, racism, uh, as it relates to this kind of movie, or I mean, it's a TJ smiling. He could talk for hours, I'm sure. You want to go, Nikki? You got thoughts? You're like, no. You got thoughts? What? What? <laughs> so, oh, no. Oh, no. I have thoughts. I figure Love you it. probably will articulate them better than I do. Well, Nikki, Nikki, Nikki no, let's you get your thoughts you... first, please. No, no, no. What, I, what I'll do is I will sit here with my microphone on. And then when TJ, and you know, as black folks are wont to do, when TJ says something that I agree with, I will go, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. Just like that. Got it. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things to talk about, right, in terms of representation is, again, and Nikki talked about this earlier, and Danny alluded to it, you get to see black women as the stars. Like, that, and it's really telling, right, because this is, in terms of the film, this is a rigid set of conventions. It is a generic Marvel, like, uh, MCU, you know, movie, right? Where usually it's like the big takeaways are we love, we love the military and we love freedom. And there always have to be very clear cut bad guys. But occasionally when the MCU makes a bad guy who has a point, then they have to instead have them slaughter a school bus through of children. So they're like, it's too far, right? I think the two examples of this are the first uh, Black Panther movie where most of us are like, wait, Michael B. Jordan has a point. Fuck. Right. Um, and then he's like, but now I'm going to kill all the countries. And they're like, oh, OK, uh, I think similarly, we would um, in the lesser scene, but I think still interesting in its own way for black representation. This happens in um, uh, Captain Captain Falcon and Winter Soldier. Right. And so where you have literally these people being like, we are displaced people. <laughs> We're displaced people who have rights to belong. And everyone's like that. That little white woman is not wrong. Right. And then she's like, and now we're going to murder everyone. And I was like, OK, I see what you did there. Um, you'd like this. Yeah. But I would say that in this film, we see powerful black women in a very specific way. Right. They are the stars. I mean, the stars of this film that are on the Wakanda side are almost entirely women. 
um, you know, with the exception of my future boyfriend, he doesn't know, but he, one day he will, will uh, Winston Duke will know that he is my boyfriend and that's fine. Um, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. He will share, mm-hmm. him. share him, but, um, you can have every other Thursday. Yeah. Fine. You know what? I work a custody agreement out with you, girl. That's fair by me. Um, okay. but right. This is, this is, this is the true spirit of Wakanda right here. It's Ubuntu. We're, we're working it out. Um, but no, <laughs> I would, I'd argue that that level of black woman representation is phenomenal. This is not a genre in which we see Black women prominently. This is not a genre where we see women prominently and we don't see Black people prominently. So we see both as an intersectional moment where like, you know, you have Garai, uh, Bassett, Nyong'o, Wright, right? All as these, you know, the major movers and shakers, right? The significant elements of the film. Uh, the actress plays Ruby Williams, right? Like each of these are significant. I think there's something to be said about that. So they can have young black women see themselves right as drivers in a story which is i think phenomenal um and i think also in terms of representation there's a moment too that i think that that i think about this a lot i think about it took the black movie it took the black movie until there was space for indigeneity and complicated latinx depictions like it and that's a certain level of potential alliance building and also shared community building but like one that i think given both the marketing and structure of american media but also one that wasn't going to happen unless it was done in this collaborative way right like this space is not made if we think about like all of the the major movies they're they're largely white men i mean it's also interesting that the only avenger who didn't get her own movie right is black widow right like the only like everyone else got it got a movie um, and then, um, and then even later, like Wanda, who's now a villain firmly in this thing, gets her own show, but then she gets a crazy, uh, crazy mom in it. Right. So like this sort of level of these depictions, it, it had to be within this sort of nestling. Right. And I think this is sort of really interesting, right? It's like the success of Black Panther is arguably what allows Shang-Chi to happen. Right. It's not, it's, this is not a controversial statement. It's like the success of Black Panther is what allows that sort of moment. But also it is explicit that the success of Black Panther allows them in their second one to say, how are we going to imagine spaces where Black people are on their own terms with other people of color, where we make space? And that I still am, am excited about, right, in the potential of this film in terms of representation, where Indigenous people get to tell stories that include them and also specifically have a moment of we see each other and we are not being simply marketed through an idealized, you know, Northern white vision. And I think that is sort of really fascinating, right? And I think it also, I don't know if an indigenous Latinx movie could have been made unless it had been done in this way, right? In this sort of piggyback way, I think, which now opens the door for so many of these things and, and it's been successful enough that we can we can imagine this happening. But, um, and I would argue that the popularity of Black Panther also allowed Disney to take risks with say like the adaptation of Ms. Marvel right, the the Muslim American Pakistani um, one, which is it would also one of the, for a lot of people, was the first time that a lot of people I knew understood that partition was a thing. It was the easiest way to teach partition to Western audiences. Just like Watchmen was the first time that most people heard about the Tulsa race riot, which again, as a historian, means that I cry a lot and drink frequently in my apartment. Um, but still, there's this sort of moment, I think that these moments created that space. And so when I think about representation, I think that's, that's those levels of moments. Also, there have been there's been minor pushback from black men who have felt that like they were sidelined in this movie. And uh, I think Nikki and I can both agree that like, A, they can fuck all the way off. 
Um, but secondly, right, like as a as a dude shaped black person, I will argue that um, ain't nothing wrong with me seeing strong black women killing it in a movie, right? Like, if anything, I am excited to celebrate this. I don't lose anything. If anything, I'm like, this is fucking awesome. And so uh, I just want to hit that head on by saying it's garbage and dumb, but also there's a sort of level of we can see that this type of inclusion is 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 important. And I, I don't think any of us are thinking that Black Panther is inherently, or an MCU movie is going to be inherently liberatory, right? Expecting like a big commercial bombast film to produce revolutionary praxis is foolish. Um, but I do think that the idea that then people can begin to see themselves and also possibilities are 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 better, right? Like, and I and I love that. I also love um, the faintest of sneak peeks in seeing same sex uh, dormilage, right? I was like, okay, all right, Disney, wink, wink, nod, nod. That that two of the dormilage are partnered with each other. And again, these are small moments, but you know, this is what we are excited about in these two. Yes, of course. Uh, M- Michaela Cole, who I don't think has been mentioned yet, who I absolutely love. She's an incredible uh, actress who uh, who's created some incredible um, television series. Uh, I may I may destroy you. I don't know if anyone's seen that. Check it out. It's incredible. Yeah, and so I love seeing her having having a, a fairly prominent uh, role in this. Um, I wonder, Nikki, if there's anything you wanted to add on uh, to to um, TJ's comments about responses from men to to being sidelined in this movie i saw that there was a physical response would you maybe like to verbalize it in some way before we move on <laughs> no no because men know what they did they know i mean they know they know what they did and so you know it, it's it's always disappointing and dismaying to see you know women like myself, you know, women who are intelligent, well-spoken, strong, Black women that have been through it and have survived and are here to talk about it. And then that power is somehow distracted from by men and their, shut up. It's been about you. It's been about you on the daily. It is about you. So this one little tiny itty bitty itty bitty thing is about me. Can we just let that ride, please? And can we also take a moment to realize and reflect on the fact that when black women look good, we make black men look good too. Because guess who makes black men? Black women. Shocker, right? So, you know, it gets a little tiresome to hear all the time. And this and in this particular instance, right? It's surprising it's not white men right you know there's a a surprisingly refreshing lack of white folks on the film in this movie and the ones that are represented in the movie are already you know the white men are already tagged as the colonizers colonizers they were he was tagged as that in the first movie you know so you knew everybody knew who he was nobody said it until shuri said it and then i was like oh Oh my gosh. Right. So hearing men hop off and be upset about the fact that they feel like they didn't get enough representation in this movie, that is obviously a very powerful statement about indigeneity, about indigenous culture, about working together, about working against a larger, you know, nameless, faceless enemy. And we work, you know, working as a team. 
And then just to have men, black men in particular, come out and and be all mealy mouthed about it is just it's exhausting. It's tiresome. And there's so many other ways for black men to better focus their energy than on on this. So we're over here minding our business, doing things, being beautiful. Don't worry about us. Okay, we're cool. You go do you. It's, I mean, I seriously think about it, you know, look around at all the different places where women are able to stand up and, and be heard and be looked upon as voices of authority in a particular place. And there's always some man somewhere saying something, you know, I remember reading on Reddit one time about a woman who was given a, and she was on this discussion, this discussion board back and forth about this research paper and this and that and this guy was telling her, well, you should really read, you know, Smith at all about this and that subject, blah, blah, blah. And she turns back and she's like, I am Smith. Dumbass, I am Smith. I wrote it. That was me. And of course, he didn't have anything else to say to that. But point being is that, you know, women are strong, women are powerful, women are smart, and women have a place. We just don't always have a representation that we can identify with. Men, on the other hand, have a representation everywhere you turn. So you have to be very judicious about the fact that, you know, you want to complain. Go ahead and complain. That's fine. I I hear you. I don't want to. I hear you, though. And when you have something really meritorious to complain about, I am there. But until then, I got other shit to do, really. I really love what you said, Nikki, uh, that strong Black women men make their men look better, right? Make uh, Black men look better. Uh, in the movie, you can even see the elders council. Women are having all, you know, Ramonda and uh, uh, Lupita Nyong'o are having, you know, are being the, the rulers, the big decision makers, the diplomats, the warriors. But men are sort of the wise counselors right and that's that can coexist if they didn't get it if the critics didn't get that part they're bad it coexists really beautifully right and i thank you for for that yeah i i mean it's 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 a very interesting discussion that we could maybe even uh pop it out to, to some wider considerations discussions of uh representation um, as TJ sort of started saying, it's interesting that Black Widow had to wait a really, really, really long time for her, for, for her movie. Um, and we, you know, if you discount Blade, which is another conversation entirely, then I mean, we had we we had to wait a very, very long time for um, for for a black superhero movie that allowed the the uh, the Shang Chi to happen. And there's this 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 wider discussion about cultural power and how and how superheroes and you know maybe Disney princesses or mermaids uh, um, are are excellent um, vehicles for for showing how angry people can get when when something that has been as you said Nikki like their daily <laughs> for so long gets it gets interrupted a little bit. I wonder if there's more that we want to say about that or uh, I, I, let's move on from that. But but kind of uh, kind of. Uh, we're talking a lot about representation, but but I, I'm 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 interested just before we move on to um, talking about trauma and grief, which I think is a very important part of this uh, film and how it's represented in this film. One last thing on representation, because Mo- Moana is being cast here in the in in uh, Oceania at the moment, um, and it, I'm reminded of discussions of 
the, the the tension between how how happy a lot of people in in this area of the world were were when Moana happened, and how frustrated others were that so many disparate cultures were condensed into one kind of movie. Uh, I wonder if there's anything to say about the representations in in, in this film. And we may have kind of covered that already, but kind of closing comments, perhaps. I was trying to look for uh, it skipped my mind the the concept there is a concept of flattening of uh representation is uh the flattening of difference and I think uh what I was saying is that the um uh the depiction of in, indigenous the mesoamerican indigenous people got um sort of mix between two major groups and the same happened uh, among the Talocans, right? The Talocans are not necessarily Mayan. They they speak Mayan. Uh, they are depicted as Mayan, but there, there is also the name Talocan comes from Nahuatl and there is a mix, right? It is Mayan enough, uh, but it's, it's a mix um, to, to fit into the movie. But also um, the same is happening in uh, for for uh, Wakandas, right? They they have different uh, indigenous African representations. And uh, TJ was talking about the Sulu and some of the. Uh, I I did a little bit of research on the on the on the ceremony, uh, the opening ceremony. The the you know I I do research and I do uh, organize the Day of the Dead at the university every every year, uh, Dia de los Muertos. That's a very um, dear tradition, Mexican tradition and indigenous tradition, where, you know, our, our concept of community also includes the the ancestors, people who have passed. And I really love that scene. And I did some research on the, the very brief, basic research that um, my colleague TJ Tali is going to say, well, you need more depth. But some of the... Um, Customs in the ceremony were uh, from Sulu funerals and Dogon funerals in Mali. There, there was, a, of course, that the flattening of difference, right? It is the representation of Wakandans as these diverse African descended descent people with different uh, depictions of different groups. So maybe you can say something more about that, the flattening of difference. Absolutely, right? So like the best way to think about this is even in the first movie, right? The each of the tribes, the looks are very explicitly taken from different parts of the continent, like wildly different parts of the continent, right? So like the merchant tribe are based on the Himba people of Namibia, right? Like uh, the river tribe is um, based in Central East Africa. And so it, it I think it's really funny because it would be like if we made a movie about Latveria, which is another fake uh country in the marvel universe this one is set in central europe but then all of the latvian customs like one would be like irish and one would be ukrainian and one would be like a mix that was very clearly both spain and denmark at the same time or i'd be like i'm sorry are you wearing a dirndl and a beret because that's not a thing right like so fine which is fine right like this is it's not real yeah and the white the like funeral white is a particularly Ghanaian custom. Often Akan peoples do this. Um, and so it's interesting to see like all of these different aspects of like what, what we do. And some of them are African-American cultural funeral traditions that we're seeing. 
Yeah, and it is, I think Antonietta says it so well, it's a cultural flattening, right? When we're, we're basically giving you a smorgasbord. And we appreciate that we're trying to include as many people as possible. But one of the right critiques of cultural flattening that happens, right, is that it's still then for the people who are in a particularly unitary culture, right, Europe, Europeans and white Americans, and then it actually, they still imagine themselves as one thing and then Africa as the equivalent of them, right? Like, it's like, it's, so again, it's always, it's always jarring when I make the, the analogy like I do of like treating European countries like we treat African countries, right? So like, this is, if I were to make like a European menu and it would be like French crepes and haggis, and then with like, a, you know, some tiramisu and you're like, oh my God, I love Europe and some Swedish meatballs. And you're like, that's a full meal. That's what we eat here in Europe, Ouija. And I'm like, no, please never speak to me again. Right. But like that sense of the sort of mishmash. So I think on some levels, it's trying to convey a place that doesn't exist, but it's also trying to draw from real, real elements. But the cultural flattening can be an issue, right? Because we're like, one of the things I do find fascinating too, is that all of the tribes in Wakanda Forever, the Wakandan language that is chosen is actually uh, Isiklosa, right? Isiklosa, which is the language of the Tulsa people, um, Nelson Mandela being the most famous Tulsa um, in Southern Africa. All the tribes except for one, which is the mountain tribe, right? And the mountain tribe, they speak Igbo, which is from West Africa, right? And again, to give you a sense of scope and scale, right? That is like all of the um all of the people speak uh english except for the mountain tribe which speaks ukrainian and you're like but again these are choices right choices are made right so it's fine um it is also very surreal for me because as a zulu speaker zulu is mutually intelligible with Isikalsa. so i can understand like 90 percent of what's happening in when they speak to each other in wakanda and i'm always like, very strange right what uh, but yeah so that cultural flattening is very real. <laughs> thank, thank you both so much for uh, expanding on on. Uh, it's a very interesting concept. Um, is there anything, Nikki, that you want to uh, say say about that? I did think of um, when you talked about cultural flattening. The first person I thought about, of course, was TJ because TJ talks a lot to his students about Africa is not a, a country. Africa is a continent. It's a big place with lots of people that are not the same, right? And so there's this this homogeneity of Africa. You know, it's like all of us are from Africa. It's like, no, there's certain things that are not in that are not inherent to all cultures across the continent, right? And so I think a lot of people forget the fact that Africa is not a country. It's a continent, like North America, right? When you start telling people America America, yes, is a country, but the continent we live on is North America. So there's there's difference. There, there's a, there's that difference, and it's not subtle. That's the thing. It's not a subtle difference. It's a difference that people for people to make who are unintelligent, who don't know, they're ignorant, right? There's nothing wrong with ignorance, of course. Ignorance is combated by knowledge. So I love the fact that you know Dr. Talley is the one out there selling, telling people, P.S. Africa is not a country. It's a freaking continent and it's bigger than what you see and what you are exposed to on a regular basis. Africa is so much more than what we see. 
And I love the fact that they did choose specific cultures to represent these specific other cultures in Wakanda. I love the color. I love the pageantry. I love all of that stuff. But I do, you know, to TJ's point, it is very specific tribes that were chosen, very specific costume design. I mean, you know, I I, I love my sister, the costume designer. She's amazing. And I would love to spend some time with her and have her throw everything in my closet away because she's a genius. Um, but fact of the matter is it wasn't even it, it barely scratched the surface of representation of the entire continent but i do absolutely appreciate the ter- the the traditions and um design costume design of the individual tribes that we did get to see yeah uh just quick comment kudos to ruth carter who is i mean i i heard her in an interview and she's a costume designer of the movie and and she was talking about Afrofuturism in custom designer. I mean, she's amazing. And I loved all the, the work she did for both, you know, for uh, these very complex depictions. I mean, it's very profound, but they, they even if they flatten the differences a little bit, it's very profound what they could accomplish in such a mainstream cinematic depiction. So kudos for her. Absolutely. Uh, the, the, some of the interviews I've read with her are, are fantastically interesting as well. I think for the for the final section, we'll move with a heavy heart because representation is such an interesting thing to talk about. Away from that and, and into, well, into another aspect of representation. In fact, a representation of kind of emotional and psychological states, which I, again, was one of the things that for me was so powerful about this film. We, we've all said, I think, that we wept multiple times uh, during the screening of this of this movie. I thought that it's representation. I, I thought it, it was an unimaginably hard thing for it to do, to deal with the, the, the death of Chadwick Boseman in the way that it did. And I thought it was kind of really sophisticated and in the end fed into so many other kind of readings as I've, as I've already mentioned. I, I wonder what everyone else thinks about this, um, the film's handling of grief and trauma and loss, and a, a film that was really structured around an absence rather than a, and I, we're talking about Marvel and the MCU and the, the marketing and, and all these things, you know, these films are so often based around a single character. Um, even more so than a than a single actor, which has been uh, historically more the case within within Hollywood. So to to deal with the the, the loss and the death of that character, uh, yeah, what, what does everyone think about that? Yeah, I think it was telling. Again, this is a movie that only that that is more accentuated and more urgent because it's post COVID, right? Where we all, so many of us, have lost someone, right? And I think explicitly, if we're thinking about black and brown people who disproportionately lost people, who statistically to access to healthcare regimes and outcomes um, were far more likely, especially the earlier parts, to lose people. And and so thinking about the freshness of the writers and everybody else perceiving this this loss, I think it's an extraordinarily real film in terms of its way that it grapples with the grief of a singular death. But I think I'm I'm sort of twigging to what Antonietta said so much earlier, Colonialism means to live constantly in death. It means to constantly live in a graveyard, right? And sometimes the luxury of being shocked by death is a privilege, right? Because so much of this is about cultural genocide 
or about physical death and grief surrounds your, the very tenor of your existence. And again, going back to what I think is the most important part, yes, we, Angela Bassett's grief, and yes, the grief over losing her in the film too, but I think truly the the, the most, and the, I mean, and I, I'll leave others to talk about the, the, the profound intergenerational historic trauma that uh, the Tlalocalans are experiencing, but I think that that when Shuri has to deal with this grief, right? When Shuri has to deal with the particular, the trauma that has been immediately wrought upon her. And one of the things that is fascinating is that Wakanda is an African-American fantasy in that it is a place in which we were not taken. And it's a place in which that the trauma that defines African-American existence does not exist. It is an alternative place. It is a utopic Xanadu of uh, in which we don't have this, right? And so to then have this death visit this place is, is this fantastic thing for us to work through our writ large grief of losing this one exceptional Black person that we loved, but also how do we deal with the trauma of this? And so I do think that essentially in seeing this, Shuri's rage and pain and fear and it is her right to want to suicidally destroy Namor. It's her right. It's absolutely right. She has earned it. <laughs> and she must instead choose not to. And again, what is so deeply frustrating, this is one thing that made me frustrated, right? And as an African-American is that we are always asked to be bigger people, right? In the face of this, right? The, the expectation of Black people is to be like, but you must be the bigger one. And I was like, don't we get, do we get like a break for this? We get like Juneteenth where we get a break. I, I will literally slap any white person that looks at me wrong on Juneteenth. And I'll just be like, this is my one day. I'm not going to be a bigger person. So don't come for me. Um, but in general, I'm not advocating for physical violence podcast listeners. Uh, also, Juneteenth is only celebrated in the United States legally. So uh, if you are listening in Fiji, please don't slap random people. I cannot say the state will protect you. But I am saying very specifically, like that level of grief and rage and that choice to have to be a bigger person is so real. And it's this level of historical trauma where like Black Americans who are writing this film are looking through the lens of their own inherited trauma but are also creating a space for other colonized people with their own particular brute force, terrible traumas to enact harm on each other and then choose a way to deal with that. And that's when I started sobbing in the goddamn theater, which was disrespectful both times um, at that choice of what does it look like for us to acknowledge, to not pretend that our trauma does not exist, but because of that inform what has to be a complicated alliance. Right? How do we fight this thing that is happening to us when actually I have every right to punch you in the throat? But I will not because that's actually not it right now. Um, and while also holding space for the fact that Black people are always expected to be the, the to, to be better, right? Um, when the worst is done. It's kind of shades of, I've been reading a biography of James Baldwin recently, and shades of the, of the way that he thinks about all these ideas um, in, in, in there. Antonietta? I really love what uh, my colleagues have been saying. Um, and this idea of grief, I mean, the movie opens with uh, uh, grief, with this funeral, and the way they they treat um, Chadwick Boseman, the 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 passing, right? The way they waved it into the new story and, and weave into the new story and talk about it uh, just openly. I There was a particular moment that really shocked me that really I was wishing it never happened, uh, but it happened when uh, Queen Ramonda is killed, right? Um, I, 
I was rooting for her. I love her character. I mean, it is it is amazing. The power, the dignity. I mean, she's carrying the whole kingdom, right? And and then it, uh, just imagine if she's killed by the water, by the power of Tlaloc, right? I just hope uh, that the writers of the of the sequel write her character as as uh, as an ancestor coming back or something. Because I mean, I think I I cannot really conceive what kind of forever or Black Panther without her in some way, as a spirit, as uh, somebody still conveying power. But that was that was um, a moment when I cried, right? I said, well, this story is gonna, it's gonna be the same story where we, we fight, right? And we never reconcile and we never built anything together. And that has been our, our history, right? Our colonized history, living in a graveyard, living next to each other, mediated by the narratives of the colonizers, right? By what they want to extract from us. That was a really sad moment. Uh, and they resolved it with that decision by Shuri, right? At the end, uh, even Ramonda coming back as, as a spirit or as a memory to her. So that... That I really hope carries that wisdom um, that she represented in the movie. And uh, it doesn't get, um, I mean, this opportunity, this space that my colleague, um, uh, Dr. Tali, was talking about, this uh, mainstream representation of Blackness, giving a space, carving this space for indigeneity, for indigenous futurism as well, right? Sounds very, too good to be true, right? Then they they write this this death and this conflict and this and, and this tragedy, right? Coming back to tragedy, tragedy is necessary. It's it's not uh, the Hollywood narrative where tragedy gets resolved. The tragedy is really really there, right? The colonial tragedy, uh, we killing each other or we damaging each other through this narrative. But then at the end there is that hope that that um you have to accept that trauma right that we live in that trauma and, and um my colleague is totally right when he says that this movie couldn't be understood or couldn't couldn't be made uh without us being very conscious about living in this in these moments of trauma right covid after covid-19 after the pandemic after so much loss that's a way to understand that to understand the grief and to understand the the, the death as well. And that might be uh, coming from um, uh, Mexican, right? They, the death and the importance that uh, the death has uh, in, in our society. But uh, I really hope that she gets written in, in future iterations of the movie as, uh, as a spirit. I, I hope so too. I have to, I have to say, I, I mean, I'm terrible for this as someone who has studied film for, for so long. People are always shocked at how shocked I am when films take twists and turns but I was really shocked to see uh Killmonger pop up in the ancestors scene in in Wakanda forever and and thrilled you know uh, uh equally and I love all this if, uh, somehow I never really kind of equated this uh, my mind was going in so many other directions uh, the the way that this is a post-covid film and and exactly as, as you've both been saying I wonder Nikki is there an, anything you'd like to add to this discussion of uh, of the films dealing with trauma and loss and grief and and, and all of these kind of uh, heavy subjects, personally. No, 
I don't have anything to add. I thought what they did, I mean, I'm going to sit here and talk about how brilliant this movie was for hours. So I'm sure if you're talking about death and trauma, it was probably beautiful and well filmed. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Okay. Well, I think, I think uh, we're we're probably going to draw it to a close here. Um, But I'd love to hear maybe some final thoughts. I've, I've done my best to steer a conversation and touch on as many different uh, subjects as I can, but Nikki, is there is there anything uh, your love for this film is so profound? Clearly, is there anything that that we need to touch on that you can that you can uh, finish up with um, for this closing section? Um, yeah, I mean, I, it, it's funny because when you were talking earlier, you mentioned about the second part in a trilogy, and I was like, trilogy? What? What do you know that I don't know? And, you know, because I was so focused on the first movie as an individual standalone film, and then I was so focused on the second movie as an individual standalone film, the idea of a sequel took me by surprise. At the end of the movie, I was like, there's going to be another one. And I'm sure that I was not the only one in the theater who did that, you know? I'm not the only one in the theater who was surprised by the idea that you know, oh, there's going to be another movie and likely the son will have a part in this movie and likely, you know, because so-and-so is still alive and such and such is doing this thing. And so we start thinking about what this next movie is going to be. So first and foremost, I'm excited for that. Secondly, thank you for Antonieta. She reminded me that I was going to say that as a midwife, we all had to talk about the water bird. We had to talk about it. We had to talk about it. It was, it was there. It happened. It was beautiful. And we other midwives and myself have all said to each other we know this what this is not news we know that birth in the water is amazing and look at this see there we go mainstream people in the big big budget films birthing in the water and you know representation of birth as normal is so so powerful and i know it's because i'm in this little niche of of a profession where, you know, I do what I do and I see what, and I'm sure that this is one of those things that generated, you know, TJ's statement of like, Africa is not a country. You know, there's, this is a little niche area where he is very important what he does and where he is. And so he's taking that knowledge, that, that, that like discovery of y'all think Africa is really just a country. Okay. um, Yeah. Let's work on that. So for someone like me, I think that, you know, birth is very normal. It's not, it's not an emergency. It's just, it's just, you know, it's just a thing. It's a thing that happens. And so for me to see what, what most people see as fearful and dangerous and scary being shown with love and compassion and peace, I was just, ah, yes. Hello. I'm so, so excited. So I'm in conclusion, I'm excited to see the next movie. I had a really good cackle about the little boy named Toussaint. <laughs> I thought that was really cute. And I am, I have Wakanda Forever actually frozen right now. It's on pause on my TV and I'm, I'm going to finish watching this movie again. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I'm going to go and watch it after, after our conversation as well. And I, and I remember the, 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 the water birth moment being so strikingly beautiful. I think it appeared in the first trailers, didn't it? And uh, yeah, I, it was incredible. 
Uh, Antonietta, I'm going to go around my screen again. Um, how about, is there anything we, we haven't discussed that you would have loved to have discussed? Or do you have any kind of closing thoughts generally? Well, uh, I just wanted to thank uh, the three of you for making this joyful, joyful, joyful conversation. I had so much uh, fun, so much joy. I think coming back to what uh, DJ said before about creating these spaces for discussion, I think we, I, I am really happy that we created this space that we are discussing uh, different points of view, different things. I I got a, a, a doll, a Namor doll, and I got a Ramonda doll as well. I am, I think I, I never went, I, I was never into fandom, but I am really, I think this, this movie has uh, brought um, into the mainstream so many important things about colonialism, about uh, Black Indigenous relationships, uh, about Africa, about Latin America, about what colonized people dream and and are and fear and live on, right? Uh, that's is very important. Uh, the prominence of this movie, and I I really hope uh, that that we continue having sequels with with movies like this. I mean, having these conversations um, in the in the in in the open. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I, I, it seems it seems like uh, as has been a kind of theme that's dipped in and out of the conversation that this is such an interesting moment for you know like uh, as Achibe said like a balance of stories right getting all these different perspectives and you know, there's 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 moments for for um, more roles for women and more roles for people of color and more roles for queer people which is. But at least their perspectives being privileged a little more, um, which is which is wonderful. And, and on that note, Professor Tally, can you take it home for us? <laughs> anything you anything we didn't discuss? Love- probably too much to, to to say that we haven't discussed. But could you? What what are your closing thoughts on all of this? I love that I get to chat about this with the three of you. It's great. I love this film. I love what we get to do here. Um, it's an imperfect film. It's not going to be. But the fact that we get this film out of a fucking Marvel movie? Out of a Marvel movie. Like, which is usually like pew pew explosion freedom. And then we get this. What? Um, I'm grateful for it. Again, it that it's such a head-on exploration of trauma and grief. And that it takes a certain space and says, like, how do we fill the void of of Chadwick? And rather than try to fill it by pretending it's not real, the movie runs right into it and says, this is a movie about grief and collapse. And how do we keep moving? And how do we keep living? And what choices do we have to make to survive? And and so, you know, how do we pass something of ourselves on to the next generation, right? Like, how do we transmit something of ourselves? And that is the African-American story. What is something that our ancestors through enslavement passed on of the continent to us that we see as a spark in us that we yearn for and are grateful that they did that, right? Um, the historian uh, uh, Terry Barnes refers to this as social reproduction, right? This idea of hoping in some form to transmit some part of yourself off to the next generation. And I think we see that in Toussaint, but I think that we are also, for African-American viewers who watch this, we are like, oh my God, we are also the viewers who are holding these pieces within us that we want to return. I think it's a beautiful, messy film. And it was so beautiful to see other people of of indigeneity 
than making these really fragile alliances and not making an alliance that pretends like, well, we're fine. No, you kill my mama. <laughs> and that's not going to get better. That will never be better. But also we are working on this thing together, right? So I think that that, I love it. And I, I'm excited for where the, the thing will go next. And it is, it is, I think, it's a rare moment where like, this was a thing that like Black people felt was their own. And then also that it was so uniquely loved and shared was like this beautiful thing. We're like, oh my God, we get to have this moment with you all. And that it was then in this space of true generosity where they're like, we want to tell Indigenous stories and lift up other people's voices. It's great. And I did it in a messy way, in the best kind of messiness. So I love it. I can think about this film all the time. I also will go watch this movie after, again after this. So I'm pretty fucking thrilled. <laughs> Thank you so much, DJ. Yeah, I, I think it's it's just incredible to, to be able to kind of position all these discussions in... Um, in, in, in the kind of colonial context that maybe some people might not quite quite understand and, and to, to have it all as we right back at the beginning uh, Antonietta said this is all about extraction uh, all about the value of minerals it's all about kind of capitalism and military industrial complex it's these are all fascinating fascinating uh not even subtext in this film so yeah i, I i'm super grateful I, i've enjoyed this a great deal as i said i've not i've not gotten on such a deep dive with a marvel film before although i think there are there are several which which could benefit from it um yeah i just saw the new spider-man film which uh I, I don't know if anyone has seen that yet but it could rather than yes. across the multiverse it could be called mars morales versus the canon it's really, really interesting on so many levels. Yeah. Um, so maybe TJ will come back for, for part two and, and, and look at that movie. But for now, thank you so much, uh, uh, Nikki, Antonietta, TJ, for your time and for educating me and enlightening me on, on so many aspects of this film I already loved and now love more. Thank you. <laughs>